Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, good morning, Mo. Morning. Back in the Minnesota office, so I've got the uh, the excellent background. Oh yes, I can see. Seven team have prepared, and of course, of course, we have the Ortho Joe. Morning. Um, yeah, and you got to have yeah, you've got to have at least two now, right? It's an, and like I'm not sure if it's I guess it's still a work week for yeah. you, but we're in that transition. There's a lot of folks just kind of just kind of skating right through until the new year, so it's pretty quiet around here. Yeah, good. Well, I just realized when the the image of the cup blurred out that in in fact I had the 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 false JBJS background. Now I've got the real background. This is just to let our audience in on the clue that we're just a couple of yo-yos chatting. <laughs> are, not, are not very are not very professional. So th- there's the oh. real there's the real deal. So. I like them both. I caught the error on the fly. So, right. so actually, this won't be uh, listened to until the new year, but this is the, the last uh, taping for, for us in calendar year 2022. And I just want our audience to know that you, as you typically do, had another outstanding posting on LinkedIn about how you manage your goals for the next year. Oh, and yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, right. A little thumbnail about... Yeah. You know, I mean, like every year, roughly the same time, I sit down, I get about 15 minutes just up quiet, and I open up a journal that I keep that only hosts kind of what I write about, a personal vision, a personal vision statement. And it's crazy, Mark. Like, you know, you think, okay, I started this around 2017, 18, and I've done it now pretty pretty carefully, pretty much on point for five, for five years or so. And I start off with a hundred words, you know, because when you start off and say, well, what's my, what's my personal goals? What's my aspiration? And then the mission is, well, I'm actually going to enact that. What's the action I'm going to do to realize this aspiration I have? You write this long verbose statement of a hundred, 150 words. You think, yeah, I've captured it all. It's down to four words. Now I won't share those four yeah. words because I think that they're personal to everybody, but it doesn't take much, right? I think we put so much effort into the complexity of what we think we should be accomplishing. And it turns out that most of our aspirations are pretty simple, probably captured in a word and probably our actions are captured in a couple of words. And that's what has been the biggest realization. So I talk about it once in a while and I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, sounds like someone's at least. Do you go you know, back reading. to it during the year? Do you go back to that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so what I do for is that like, so what before, like, you know, um, like when over an early academic or you're, you're early surgeon, you're practicing, you're doing something, I would say yes to everything. I'd go all over the place, and people would say, "You'd said it to me too." It's like, "Mo, you gotta, you, you gotta pick and choose your, you gotta pick and choose. You can't do everything." At some point, you, you're gonna try to do everything, and then you're gonna end up doing a lot of things not well, and that's gonna be a problem. Early on, it's okay, but what it does, it becomes your guide. So, I only decide now to do things that align with my personal vision for what I want, what I'd like to do, and then also the act that make sense to the type of things I do. So it truly informs the, the work I take on. It tr- truly informs the travel I do and the people I interact with. So it, it has made a big difference, actually. Yeah. Well, great. Thanks for sharing that. With no, our, no problem. Our and, 
So this is one of our standard ortho Joes where we're just kind of chatting with one another about what's going on in our individual journal roles. And I'm going to kick it off with what I found was a, an extremely important uh, manuscript that we published in the most recent journal. Actually, I ha I I'm having to use an electronic copy because with all the mail going to the North Pole, apparently the post office uh, at the University of Minnesota is overwhelmed. So I've got the online version. But anyway, the uh, manuscript is from the University of Southern California, Nate Heckman, a emerging star in the arthroplasty research world. The article is entitled The Rise of Medicare Advantage, the Effects on Total Joint Arthroplasty Patient Care and Research. And this topic was, I guess, the main learning from the symposium that we did in 2021 and just recently published, which is a free access. Uh, it's available to all, all people everywhere, researchers alike, on the use of large administrative databases as well as joint registries. And this topic was the aha moment for researchers who have been using the CMS, which is Medicare Medicaid funding agency in the United States, which is a widely used uh, research database. And this article compared the data from patients who are enrolled in Medicare Advantage, which started in the early 2000s, and basically it's standard Medicare coverage, but managed by one of the large insurer companies, United Healthcare, amongst others. And so Medicare enrollees have the option of standard Medicare, which is managed by CMS, which is, provides the data on which we do research in joint arthroplasty and, and others. And the patients who are enrolled in Medicare Advantage, because their data is managed by private insurers, it's not in the data set. And this article is extremely important for researchers, anybody who's going to use this database. And they look from 2004 to 2020, the proportion of patients with Medicare Advantage, which is the private managed side, increased from 7.9% the 34.4%. And traditional Medicaid decreased from roughly 84% to 54%. Well, turns out that there are distinct differences in the two populations. And the, the authors used very sophisticated statistics uh, to control for all the variables and found that patients who are enrolled in Medicare Advantage are different racially. They have a very increased higher odds of surgical site infection and prosthetic joint infection, stroke, and acute kidney injury. So this manuscript is alerting the research world that, boy, you better be careful when you're making conclusions about the over 65 population in the United States covered by Medicare, because there are real differences between those in traditional Medicaid as compared to those managed by private insurers in the Medicare Advantage program. And this is a really, really, I think, important finding. And as I said, was a major aha moment uh, in that symposium, which is uh, published. Well, so given this uh, rather, uh, I think, uh, alarming finding, what, what, are, what are your thoughts of, about this, uh, Mo? And I'm going to ask you to, uh, to describe, are there similar problems in uh, Canadian databases, like the Ontario provincial database, et cetera? Well well, I think I'll start off by saying, you know, I mean, I'm, as I understand it from what you've um, sort of given the summary of, we're talking about a private insurer, you know, with a slightly different set of criteria for who's getting in, I presume. I presume also, I think I'd read that 
that also within the within the Medicare Advantage, there are specific networks that you have to be part of, I guess, to be, Correct. you know, so there's, so there's this real sense of, well, if there are differences, you know, first of all, are they true? It looks like there's been a lot of analysis. So certainly hypothesis generating stuff here that suggests, okay, we should be looking into this and then trying to understand why those differences exist. Canada, as you know, has long been discussing at, at you know, at the federal level, you know, privatized healthcare in some way. And there's been the, the public versus the, you know, the uh, what they're called for profit enterprises within Canada. And there's really, we've looked a lot to the US around sort of the public private, you know, evidence. You know, there's always been this debate that private healthcare, at least based on some of the trials that have been published, and that's what Canadians have used and some of the researchers at McMaster have used, you know, that doesn't always lead to better outcomes, you know, and, and also leads to greater costs. I don't know if, in fact, that is, you know, part of the message that's happening here uh, associated with the, you know, the Medicare Advantage, you know, uh, research that's being done. But it is concerning, and I think it's sufficiently concerning that I would be really trying to understand how and why, you know, these differences are occurring. And it could just very much be base population, but I think it's got to be deeper than that beyond just the patients. I mean, there's probably a system-wide issue there. But I tell you, that's the kind of research that I think we need. And this is the kind of research that big data can uncover that we wouldn't otherwise uh, be able to uncover. The naysayers, Mark, will say, well, you know, um, you know, this is, you know, this is someone else's, you know, skewed lens at looking at information. And this is why, you know, um, I, you know, you've heard the thing, data doesn't have feelings, right? At the end of the day, we have to basically try to look at it as pure as we possibly can and get many, many people uh, to triangulate uh, with that type of information, but fascinating. And I think that we've been thinking about this in Canada a slightly different way. So we don't have a private system per se, but the debate has been strong. Right. I think that the number one take home message is that anybody utilizing the CMS data set uh, for research needs to be aware it doesn't include all patients and that there are distinct differences between those enrolled in Medicare Advantage controlled by private insurers and those right. who are in the traditional Medicare oh. service. And it's really important differences and buyer beware when you're using this data set now. Uh, that's fascinating. No, that's really, really good. And I, and I congratulate the authors for putting this work out. Important. What's been on your mind? So very simple, but you know, I guess as we start thinking about simple and frugal innovations, one came to mind and actually it's not even in orthopedics, but I think it has a lot of relevance to what our field does. So it was by the Surgery NIH Global Health Research Unit published in the Lancet not that long ago in November of 2022. We have an ACE report and we also have a podcast with one of their uh, corresponding authors, uh, Dr. Ghosh, who's part of the India hub of this uh, group. Basically, this, the study title is as follows, Routine Sterile Glove and Instrument Change at the Time of Abdominal Wound Closure to Prevent Surgical Site Infection. The acronym of the trial is called CHEETA. It's a cluster randomized trial in basically seven low-income uh, countries. 13,000 patients recruited, and it was roughly, you can see, uh, by half. And then what they did is, in the intervention, is they made sure that they did an instrument and a glove change just before wound closure in these abdominal procedures. Now, here's the interesting part. When you look at the results, you can imagine that, that you would assume that there would be some a benefit, but it was a fairly robust benefit, just glove change and instrument change before wound closure in developing nations. So here's Here's what they found. They, they found, first of all, that routine care, like in terms of 
um, glove change occurred in less than 0.8%. So it's not happening in, in developing nations. In their active group, they, they were able to get it above, it looks like here, 98% or so. And the surgical site infection rate was 18.9% in the current practice group versus 16% in the intervention group. Now, that means it's a 13% reduction of risk, anywhere from 5 to 21% just by changing your gloves. And to me, when you get these large trials and you start seeing very simple maneuvers, now I know in open fracture care, orthopedics has in fact many ways led the way in terms of thinking about how we're going to be you know, managing you know, infection prevention. But we often get so focused on medication and all the other things we can do, we forget about some of the perioperative, simple things we can do that are actually fairly low cost. And I think what this particularly arose in me was this idea that when we're thinking about global change and global uh, impact on infection care, like this one, a big one, we may be looking sometimes in the wrong places. And sometimes it's the very simple, simple things we do can lead to you know pretty dramatic changes. I mean, if in any trial, uh, Mark, that we have been able to show a versus B implant led to a 13% reduction in th with a significant difference of P.003 and a relative risk that was nowhere near, we'd be all over, we'd be jumping over the moon. We never find that. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. yeah, you and I would be involved in implant design if we'd seen. Right, right, right. So right at this point, you, you simply say, take your glove off before you uh, do, you know, before you close the wound and change it. I mean, that's pretty, pretty amazing. And, and I guess the point is there are so many of these steps in infection control, that there isn't one magic bullet. And I think that we've learned, you know, just in many ways, you know, sometimes the hard one, you do a big trial and you don't find the difference you're hoping for. And you realize there's a series of other steps that we have to account for that makes these trials very important. But I did ask them, you know, in, in, a, in an interview uh, with these with the authors that, you know, what's next? And they're continuing to look at other subspecialty areas. And they're very keen to be exploring similar ideas, you know, in other areas. And, you know, obviously orthopedics is, a, is an area of interest for them as well, as well as the care of open fractures. So interesting work. And for those who have a moment, take a look at this paper. It's, a, you know, it's actually, it, it gives a good insight to, you know, the conduct of large, simple studies that, you know, can often have a fairly big impact. Right. So I have a confession. I haven't read the study, but I've got a couple of questions, one methodologic and one kind of philosophical. But sure. what is what is your assessment of detection bias uh, in this in terms of documenting who's got an infection and who doesn't? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the challenge always is, is that, you know, like, so they have a lot of hard outcomes, like, you know, risk of reoperation versus yeah. infection, infection requiring antibiotics. Um, because of the fact that they had it in seven countries and not maybe you know, 50 countries. And because this group is a reputable, and, you know, obviously when you look at this, there is an element of an element of trust in the fact that, that there has been some rigor in the design of the trial and some trust in the fact that the National Institute of Health Global Research Unit that's based in multiple countries, yep. you know, has a good monitoring group, but they did talk a lot about how they monitor. They did talk a lot about what their criteria was for infection. At the end of the day, though, you're right, we never really know with groups and we have to continue doing this work. So I think when someone says, well, this is a definitive trial, I always say, well, it's an important trial that shows an important benefit and we have to continue doing this work because the more of us that reproduce this finding, the more likely, you know, it is to be valid. But I, but based on their methodology to answer your question, I, I do believe it's fairly robust. Okay, excellent. The philosophical question is, should we recommend to our colleagues in Malawi and 
Haiti uh, to change gloves, you know, even no- noticing that this is going to impact their resources as well. Are, are we ready to yeah. do that now? Well, you know, and I guess it gets back to how do you make a decision whether, you know, implementation or, or value of abdominal surgery has the same value, in, let's say, in orthopedic procedures or, you know, and these are, these are a lot of these were clean. I think they're clean contaminated and some little contaminated, but, you know, how, what does it make sense? My, my perception is that if it's a low cost, frugal intervention, but, you know, gloves, again, I mean, yeah. relative to other things are frugal, but you know, still there's a real cost to it compared to other potential, you know, things we could be doing. It, it, I would say that if we can attempt to implement and see uh, at, at sites, it'll become apparent very quickly, um, you know, whether or not something is working. Right. And ultimately, ultimately, we're going to need, um, you know, evidence to help us move uh, these areas forward. And I do think these are the types of trials globally that are going to be important as we think about, you know, extrapolating this information and finding out whether there is generalizability to this kind of work. But overall, I think I would be more in line to say we should try it if it's frugal. Right. But it sounds like this group is intending to move on to open fractures. They are. I mean, you know, the truth is when you ask, um, and the truth, when you ask anybody what your plans are, plans always to do more. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, um, any of us who feel compelled to say, you know, I think that's an important question. We can't start asking that question. We can't start engaging in those discussions and possibly connecting with this group and, you know, maybe even leading it. I mean, the truth of the matter is, you know, there's lots more questions in infection that we can ever answer without collaboration. So I would say, don't assume someone else is going to do it. You know, if you feel compelled, we should, we should jump on it. Yeah. Well, based on the feedback that we've been receiving about ortho, Joe, I would I would say that uh, there's more work to be done in 2023 for uh, you and I. So we'll we'll press on. And that's I think all, yeah, all we will do is keep sharing information. And I think that leads to debate and discussion. I think this has been probably for me one of the highlights, you know, of the things I get to do is to talk about things that are, we feel are important and hopefully engage others uh, in that discussion with us, Mark. So it's been a great privilege and a pleasure uh, with you and the whole team at uh, JBGS. Been great. And onward to 2023. Onward. And, uh, happy, healthy, and based on your recent work on your diary, productive mm-hmm. 2023. Absolutely. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.